Good morning, church. Good to see you guys. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning. And uh, so good to be with you. I, I believe that Ecclesiastes is written particularly to younger people. And what it's there to do, really, is to help them to not live their whole lives for things that don't really matter in the end. And get to the end of their lives and realize it at the end of their lives. Ecclesiastes is supposed to set the tone for a young person in the beginning of their life to see what really matters in this world and what are the things I'm really to live for and what are the priorities, what is the structure, what do I give myself to, to where in the, in the end I know it's a life that's well lived, it's a life that matters. And I think that's what Ecclesiastes is really there to assist us with. And Ecclesiastes is a baptism into the misery of living for the things that don't matter. That's what it's trying to do to us. And, and, and it's taking all of us, but especially the younger generation, uh, down a philosophical journey of living your life for things that don't really matter and feeling the misery of having done that so that you can back up from uh, a, an earlier perspective and live it for the things that do matter. That's what I believe Ecclesiastes is really trying to do. And it's a baptism into the brutalities of this world. Uh, and it's not just baptizing us into the brutalities of this world just to be brutal. It weans us from finding our hope, our meaning, our purpose, our identity, happiness, and the things that can never give us that. We human beings don't really learn the easy way very often. I know that's true of me. Maybe it's true of you. Um, just because someone told us something, um, we don't normally really just take it on, right, necessarily. Many times we have to put it on and try it ourselves, and learn from experience and get to the end of that path and feel the misery of whatever choice we've made and path we've followed to finally come to the conclusion, okay, my mom was right. Right? I mean, we, we do. That's how we learn. Most of the time we learn the hard way. And Kaheleth is trying to say, okay, let's go down those paths before you actually pick a path. So philosophically you go down these paths to get to the end of all these paths, come back to the beginning, and then you have wisdom. And that's why this book is placed in wisdom literature. And today, Kohelet is, is going to continue to take us down a road where we grieve the things um, of this world. Things that happen in this world, things we notice in this world that cause us to grieve in our hearts. And there's a purpose for that. But he lists a few things here today. But really, in chapter 4, he's continuing a conversation. He actually started back in chapter 3 in verse 16. And so I want to read that passage to kind of set the tone. And then we're going to pick up in chapter 4, 1, because that's all we have time for today, and, and move on with that. So Ecclesiastes 3, 16 first, and then we'll get to chapter 4. Here it is, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun... That in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. 
and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So what is he saying here? Kohelet is saying that in this existence under the sun, in other words, you remember, he uses that term all throughout the book, and what that means is in this material world, this existence that we are existing in right now, this universe, this temporary existence that we have under the sun, he's saying the place of justice, in other words, the place dedicated to execute justice for people, to right wrongs, to help, um, uh, to, to, to make sure that we live in a just land and that we can live and, and wrongs are righted in our land. Um, uh, that place, so it would be government, laws, justice, um, those people who make those uh, decisions and execute justice in a land. He said, in, in, in that place, in government, even corruption is there. It existed back then. Not today, but... Back then, government even had it. Can you imagine? But what's the grief here? The grief is, even in the place that's supposed to provide justice on the earth, even there, wickedness is there. And what is justice? Uh, Well, justice is needed because wrongs are committed. Justice rights wrongs. Laws sort of protect from the wrongs, but then laws have to be executed, laws have to be uh, followed and reinforced, and justice is the process of righting wrongs according to a law standard. Um, So you have a judge that gets a case of one person doing wrong against another human being, and the judge has the law, and he has to interpret the law according to the circumstance, and bring justice to a situation. And, and in, when he does bring justice to a situation, and all are be able to see, um, you, you and I could say that, man, we grieved a wrong that was done, and we are really waiting for this trial to play out so that it's, it's righted. And there's a satisfaction that comes to your heart. Have you ever had that? When you know something wrong has happened, and it gets into the court, and the court does the process it needs to to make sure that it's doing justice and not just perverting and doing whatever it wants to do. It goes through the right process and then it executes justice for something that's happened that's wrong. And you and I go, yes, right? Um, imagine, though, they just said, ah, this doesn't seem important to us. We're not going to do anything. You, the grief that's there and you, you really want to see this thing, the satisfaction that doesn't come. That's what he's pointing to here. He's saying there's corruption in places that are supposed to bring justice, and it's all the time, and it's everywhere. (laughs) And this happens on this earth all the time, everywhere. Why do we grieve when justice is thwarted in some way? A judge is bribed and paid off, and he decides not to bring justice to a situation or or it's just ignored, or no one does anything about it. Um, why does that grieve our hearts? Well, it grieves our hearts because we as human beings know there's right and there's wrong. You know it from the time you were a kiddo. You remember saying, that's not fair. He gets ice cream, and I didn't. You know? And, and, and you know there's a balance to the universe and when a wrong is committed, there's an imbalance, and it has to be righted for the balance to be restored, right? You know it. You have that in your heart. 
And we know there's right and there's wrong and you can do wrong and that wrong needs to be righted. And we know that. We know it innately. And, and we get that from God. God is just. Just means that he loves justice. Righting wrongs. Wrongs being righted. It's like the balance of the universe. And that's where we get it from. God, imago dei, we are made in his image and we feel it. And it's in our hearts. We want justice for things that are done wrong. And Kohelet is saying, tap into that with me for just a minute. We want that. We want justice. And justice is perverted all the time. Feel that grief? Things are just overlooked. Things aren't brought to court. Wrongs aren't righted. It's just there, and it's there in mass all the time in every generation. Feel that grief? Grieve this world? It happens. Secondly, he says, even in the place where righteousness is supposed to dwell, there is wickedness, corruption. Where do you go to see that at least righteousness, some standard of righteousness, and people who are righteous are at least here? It's your religious leaders. At least there... I can see some, something about righteousness, and, and, and what he's saying is, is that even in religious leaders, it's there too. They have wickedness as well. It's everywhere. It's in everyone. It's all over the place. Let's grieve this world a minute. And we're talk, obviously talking about the Christian doctrine of depravity. That sin is a power in the heart before it's ever an act that we do. It's in us, and, and it causes us to do and to feel and to think the things that we feel and do and think. But it's a power in us before it's an act that we actually do. And every human being has all the potential in their heart to do just as much evil as the worst evil a human being can do. All of us have that potential in our hearts. And Kaheleth is saying, man, this corruption, this wickedness, this potential for sin is everywhere. It's even the places that you hope would provide some sense of justice, some sense of righteousness. And, and, and even there, it's there. And we know that these things are there. And we know that injustice happens. And we know that righteous standards are almost impossible for any human being, except one, to fulfill. And we know all of this. And it causes us to grieve because we feel it shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't happen. Well, the Christian recognizes that we live in a fallen world. We have an answer for this. And it's filled with sinful people who, when they are driven by sinful things to a large degree in their life, they can do very terrible things to other people. And at the heart of sin is selfishness and pride and potential for all sorts of evil. And it's in every human heart, no matter what position they take, no matter what place they're in. But think about this real quick. If this material world is all there is, and remember the goal of Ecclesiastes, the goal of Kohelet, is to challenge the view that I'm, I, I can, I, this is where it is somewhere in this material world. This is worth living for, all right? Uh, if the material world is all there is, there is no God, and there is no supernatural, then there really is no such thing as evil. 
There's no such thing as good or bad. There is no real standard of right and wrong. And thus, there is no justice. There's no need for it. Lions take down a baby gazelle and have dinner. I just took out a person that was annoying me. All the same. Why is that wrong? This world is all there is. It isn't wrong. Responsibly, who says it's wrong? Equality. I know I've said this before. I reiterate it every once in a while. In our culture, equality is a high value. But you know another high value in our culture? Is we are becoming more and more secular in our culture. We are working God out of the equation. More and more every single year. Well, equality is a Judeo-Christian doctrine. And you're not going to get that in a secular world. Equality doesn't exist in a secular world. So you step over into the worldview of a secular, a secular person. No God, no supernatural, material world is all there is. And you step into this worldview. Well, equality is based on the fact that God made man special in the universe Imago Dei, image of God. Therefore, with the image of God comes special rights, privileges on the earth, responsibilities that you're given. That is where that comes from. If there is no God and there is no, nothing other than this material world, then you're the same value and, and equal with everything else on this earth. Plants, dirt, mosquitoes. We extinguish mosquitoes. Why can't we extinguish a few uh, human beings that we don't really like? What's to tell you? That equality is even there. Why not one race extinguish another? Now, you know I'm not advocating for that. But I am saying, what basis do you have in a materialistic worldview, in a secular worldview, where equality even exists? What basis do you have? You have none. You have none. And yet we have a culture that is chanting equality... And they have no basis for it from a secular mindset. We're taking God out, well, then you also need to get rid of equality. You must have them both or neither. Now, if we operate from a basis from this material world is all there is, and we want to live our lives free of the idea of God, then we need to go the full way. All right, here's what Koheleth, I believe, is pushing on here. And we need to go the full way and we need to remove the idea of equality and justice and all of those things. If you're saying this material world is all there is, don't borrow from the Christian worldview of justice, equality. Don't go be borrowing from another worldview the things that you need. Does that make sense? Koheleth is pointing here and saying, are you sure that living a life for this temporal world and something in this temporal world is where it's at. Are you sure? Are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to go there? Are you sure you want to remove God from the equation? Have you seen this world? Have you looked at the mess that's going on? 
It isn't sounding all that great. And then he says in chapter 4. Now we're picking up in chapter 4, and he's talking about, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Chapter 4, verse 1, says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done, again, under the sun in this, in this existence. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Life, full of situations. Look at history, full of situations uh, that will just break your heart. Situations where people are oppressed all the time. People are oppressed for their whole lives. Live, born, lived, died, all under oppression. And then it says, on the side of their oppressors, there was power. So there was no one to comfort them. In other words, by the way, too, power and oppression is where you go when you want to get something done in this world and you are alienating the idea of God from the equation. When you take God out of the equation and you really want to get something done on the earth, power rules the day on the earth. And so you oppress. Why? Because it's how you get things done. You have no law. You have no truth. You have no transcendent divine revelation that tells you what is right and wrong for all of us. You determine what you want and you get it done through power. That's how you go. It's back to paganism. It's back to barbarism. That's how you get things done in the world when you have no basis theologically. But he says on the side of their oppressors, there's power and there's no one to comfort them. The strong in this world often mistreat the weak. The rich stomping on the poor happens all the time, everywhere. Think about the cruelty, unimaginable cruelty and hardships faced by Africans in the south from getting on the boat Boat treatment, being sold, families split up from their children, and then the conditions they lived in, how long they lived in those conditions. Think about that. Some born, lived, died, all in horrible, horrible conditions. Their whole life, whole life. Does that make you grieve? It should. Many of us grieving the Taliban coming to power in Afghanistan. Why? Well, I grieve because of what I've seen the Taliban do in the past. They come in and they are brutal to people who disagree. People don't see things the way they do. Many people in Afghanistan have become Christians over the last 20 years. And they're there. And they don't have a green card. And they don't have a passport. And they don't have a way to get on a plane. And they're there. And now government has just come in and ideologically probably will be very oppressive to them. And I say pray. Pray for the people. Pray for the Christians in Afghanistan particularly. There's going to be some persecution there. And I grieve it and you grieve it. But Kahela says, that's the stories of the real world. Now, you and I, we live in America. We've got six flags. We've got fun, lake, boat, holidays, pie, pizza, family, freedom, all kinds of good, right? But if you really look at the real world, 
And you look at history. That ain't the norm. The norm is brutal. The norm is terrible. The oppressors that have happened in this world. That's the real world, says Kohelet in verse 2. And then he makes some conclusions about these oppressive situations. He says, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. He says, in these situations, those who have died are better off than the ones who are living and suffering so much. They at least have some relief. And then he said in verse 3, but better than both, the living and the dead, is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. They haven't been existing to experience it or to see it. And he says, when you see these horrible things that people do to each other in this world, it makes you feel like it may have been better never to have been born. So when you look at the oppression in this world, it causes you and I to grieve. Are you feeling the grief with Kohelet yet? You feeling it? Because that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get us to grieve the realities of this world. And down deep in the human heart, we ask, man, there's got to be more to this world than that and this current existence because this place is messed up. People do some really horrible things. Causes us to grieve. But remember this. Ecclesiastes isn't meant to give you a whole lot of hope. Ecclesiastes is simply taking you to the place of reality. And it's leaving the searching to you. And it's saying, look at the oppression. What do you do? What do you do with that? How does that make you feel? Do you want to live for the things of this world? If that's the reality, you're going to put your hope in a temporary existence? You're going to live for that stuff? You're going to live for the stuff of this world? Let's talk about that. Let's go down that path. Let's look at what that might end up looking like at the end. So it's not going to give you solutions. It's only telling you all the problems and beginning a search process in your heart. How can a person have the real happiness we want and we're looking for in this world when it's like that? Then Gehella sees another terrible reality in this world. This is going to come a little closer to home, so uh, pull your shoes in. Verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also a vanity and a striving after the wind. He's saying envy is everywhere. Koheleth is looking at the landscape of humanity. He's looking at all their comings and goings. They're going to work and doing to this and going to the market and planning this and that and building houses and doing all that they do. Help me out. Come on. Go, let's go look. See all humanity in there hustling and they're bustling. And he's saying, man, I'm looking at the heart and they're all moved by envy envy it's everywhere life is a a big competition against UT and Oklahoma yeah I'm just I just had to throw that in there one person trying to do outdo another everywhere we're all kind of driven by it it's just it's just we do it it's instinctive we don't even really think about it too much it's part of the sinful nature that we're born with. 
And, and it can be a core drive of our life, and we're really not even aware of it. We just do it because it, it kind of feels good, actually, to live in this plane of, of you know, achievement and getting a little bit more than the, than the Joneses, right, down the street. They got the new Tesla. So you got the new whatever that is. I don't even know. Uh, it can play out in our materialism in America. Always striving to have what others around you have or more than what they have, feeling a very great sense of, of less value and jealousy when others have more than you do or get more or are honored above you or this whole idea. Um, this is where envy really comes from. And when you are esteemed above another with material possessions or status or whatever it might be, it makes you feel a little, a little superior and you feel a little bit like more important. And I got meaning and I got value in life. And this is my, my, my way of feeling good about me and about my life. Well, Heleth looks around and says, this is everywhere. Ah, it's in every person. Striving after the wind, man. They're going to get to the end of a life driven for that stuff. Outdoing the next guy. They're going to get to the end of their life and they're going to go, what was it all for? It was nothing. And then, then he says, what are we to do? Well, number five, verse five. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. He says, basically, the fool reacts to that statement. And he says, he swings the pendulum all the way to the other right side, and he goes, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to fold my hands, and I'm not going to work. I'm not going to chase money. I'm getting out of materialism. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backpack across America and live on the street. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do nothing. He goes, that's a fool. Um, not, backpack across America, that's fine. I'm not saying that's a fool, okay. Uh, but, but he's saying the fool says, I don't, I'm not going to work. I'm not even going to work. I'm just going to give up. Do nothing. Verse 6, there is a balance, is what he's saying. You don't go there. He's trying to move back to balance. Better is a handful of quietness than two handful of toil and a striving after the wind. In other words, uh, instead of uh, being rooted in envy and being work and driving and success and achievement and outdoing the next guy or outdoing the next thing or people or whatever that might be and living for two handfuls of nothing but toil and chasing this thing and envy being at the core of it. He's like, hey, how about just one handful and then enjoy your life too at the same time. Is that good? Can you, can you do that? Uh, can you know that when, to, when to leave work and to go home and enjoy your family and your friends and enjoy life? There's a balance here. Work hard, but know when to quit and go home and enjoy the, the life God's given you, is what he's saying here. Our ultimate purpose in life should not come from our achievements and how our achievements make us feel important and valuable. Work hard. Take a break. Go to the lake. Six flags, such and such, right? This is what he's saying here. And then verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This is the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. The man who worked, 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 amassed, 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 get what you need to get, get what you need to get, and in the end, who was it for? That's the question the ghosts ask. 
You have no one in your life. You have no friends. You're lonely. Why? Because you did nothing but chase this thing out of envy. You chased it and you starved all the relationships around you. And now you have nothing. You have money and you have nothing. Work, work, no play. And they never stop to ask, for whom am I doing all this stuff for? Why do I have sleepless nights about my work? For me? How about, well, who else am I doing this for? And I never, they never stop to ask that question. They just keep on, keep on. Verse 9, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift, it, lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone. And when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Castaway is one of my favorite movies. Have y'all seen that? Tom Hanks. Forget the name of the guy in the movie, but on the FedEx flight, crashes in the ocean somewhere in the Pacific, I think. And he ends up, and, he, and would you have it, he ends up in an a island paradise. I mean, the beaches are gorgeous and wide open. It's like he owns the place. The beautiful blue water. Exotic fish everywhere. The palm trees. Beautiful sunshine. He can lay out every day. Nobody to bother him about work. The sunsets. Man, you should see the sunsets. Beautiful, gorgeous Pacific sunsets. Awesome. It's like heaven. No, more like hell. Why? He's alone. He has no one. Um, he has this volleyball and he named Wilson. And he paints a face on the volleyball at one point, y'all remember? And he set it up somewhere in this cave. And he starts talking to the volleyball as if it's his friend. And that's a wonderful illustration. What is that saying? It's a beautiful illustration that says, if we have no one, we will create someone. Why? Because we were made for relationships. We were made for community. We were made for others. Others. And so he's, he doesn't have anyone, and he's going to create someone. I have to relate. I've got to connect. I have to. And then later, he has a raft full of sticks. He wants off this paradise island. It's where you and I want to go. Right? It's where we long to go. And we could wish we'd live there. And he's wanting off. Get me out of here. Sticks going out. You got Wilson. And then they get, he gets out into the deep and something happens. And Wilson, in a storm, gets loose from the raft and floats away slowly but surely. The one connection piece he had is getting ripped away from him. And he's freaking out crying aloud, Wilson. And, and you know what? It's a, it's, a great, it's a great depiction of man's need for others. We need others. We were not meant to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. We were created to be together in community. 
And Kehelleth is saying here that there is strength for this life. That there's a coping mechanism for all the hardships that this life's going to throw at you. And that coping mechanism is people. Strength comes from having people. And I'm not talking about just connections. I'm talking about belonging. Belonging. A three-strand cord tied together is strong to handle the things of life. Somebody can hold you up when it hits you, right? And you can hold others up when it hits them. And there's strength in community. He says two are better than one. And then he says three are better than two. In other words, the more the merrier. My wife loves that part. She can't have enough people at a party. The more the merrier. Life is meant to be lived and enjoyed in community. You know, we live in an individualistic culture, and it's becoming more and more so this way. Back in the 40s, 50s, and even 60s, you had, you know, neighborhood community. I mean, the, the, my, in my, my growing up, the neighbors could spank me, all right? They could spank me. And my dad would go, thanks. Thank you for doing that. Get over here. What did you do? You know? I mean, you could do that. Um, and because there was like community, you know what I mean? There was like you were part of something and there was expectations and it was not about you and what you wanted. It was about you being a part of the community. And we had neighborhood communities and individualism has driven us to isolate ourselves from those things. We want out of that. We want to close the garage behind us whenever um, we, got, we pull in. We don't really know our neighbors that much. We, primary relationships are built around work. And, and, and that's part of it. But we were made for community. And, and, it, and it makes us strong in life. One more thing Kehelleth notices and I'm done. Verse 13 down to 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been poor, I saw the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was, stand, who, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Koheleth saw an old, stubborn king. He had all the power and all the wealth and all the stuff, but he was stubborn. And he says, you can have all the power and the wealth and, and, and be stubborn, and it'd be better if you, had, you were young, considered powerless, and had nothing to your name, and yet you at least had wisdom. The ability to take advice, humility, to be able to listen to other people along the way. And so that's one point that he's saying here. But he remembers that king, a particular king, that he's looking at. And he says, I remember that king was once young. And he had nothing, and he was in prison, and he gained great favor among the people. A lot of people amassed around him for this following. And they supported him as king, and he was their king. And he came from uh, rags to riches, in other words, and he became the king in this particular area. But then he also noticed, okay, he's king. And then one year passes, and then another year passes, and another year passes, and the people stopped caring as much as they used to. And his, you know, approval ratings started slacking more and more and more. And, and all the excitement and all the hustle and the bustle and all the, the inspiration of him becoming king had started to settle. And then he says, he's old, he, something happened in his heart, he got proud, he stopped listening to people, and now he's a king, he doesn't listen to anybody anymore, he's older, and you know what? The people, they don't even really 
pay much attention to him anymore. They don't really, not, all the favor ratings are all down. Okay? That's what he's talking about here. What is he grieving? What's he grieving about this? Well, you can root yourself in a cause in this material world. And man, you can have a strong sense of purpose and meaning that can come from a, a political aspiration. Let's just call it that. Or it can be anything, but a political aspiration. And you can be a part of something that feels so meaningful. And it can feel like your, your whole life matters because you're part of something. You're part of something in this world that is making a difference, right? Um, and it's very satisfying to be a part of something, a movement like that in the world. And many people give their whole lives to being a part of a movement like that. And it gives a sense of purpose. And they spend their whole life doing that. But let's stop and think a minute. If this material world is all there is, here's the reality you need to know about causes. There's something very hopeless in aspirations of causes because they cycle. That's what he's pointing at. So exciting, man, new king. He's going to do this, he's going to do that. And he comes in and he changes his heart and then he gets a little, he gets a little stubborn. And then everybody kind of falls around. And then guess what? Another king comes spilling up and he gets a following. And then he comes up and then he probably replaces a lot of things the other guy did. And then it all, you just keep shuffling the deck. Of, war, of this world. If you do any world history, you look at kings come and then kings go and then that king came and he did this and then he went and then this king came and he did that and he left and this person and these people rose up and they rebelled and they re and then another king came up and they just basically uh, ruined, uh, just eliminated everything that they had done 50 years before. Um, generations can many times swing the pendulum the opposite direction of whatever the generation before them did. They love this. They did this. They fought for this and then the next generation comes along and goes that's ridiculous we're going to fight for this and they go the other way generations do that all the time when you're talking about causes and things that you're going to give yourself to how many of you have rallied behind a candidate you got excited about some things he said for president you voted for him and then he didn't do any of it I know that never happens I'm just saying you know, it's the way of things, right? How many times um, has a politician said they do something and they're not Washington, they're going to go to Washington and they're going to fix Washington and then what do they do? They go to Washington and they become like Washington. And you're like, well, I thought you were going to do something there. You know, I, I'm just giving you examples of this whole cycle. Causes, causes, causes. You, you live your whole life for something and then you find out Three generations later, if you're dead and gone, someone just totally wiped it off the map. It doesn't even exist anymore. Do you know those cycles happen all the time? Have you looked beyond just the immediate thing right in front of you and thought about cycles in this material world and how nothing really changes? Now, we've, we approach this from a materialistic worldview. This is how it looks. It just keeps doing this, and it ends up in the same place it was. And you were a little blip, and you went away, and it mattered nothing. If this material world is all there is, that is the reality of the world you live in. And you can get excited about causes, and you can be a part of them, and you can give your whole life to them. But I'm telling you, it just cycles. You just shuffle into deck, and the deck gets shuffled again after you're gone. 
It happens. This is the reality. And this is what he's talking about. That king came up, and it was just all gone, and then nothing really came of it. That's grievous. Does that make you grieve? Cycle after cycle after cycle. It's rather depressing, and it's supposed to be. What does this have to do with happiness? If you want happiness in this world, you got to let these depressing thoughts about the life without God in this world help you see that we have hope available for these grievous things. There is hope available, but not in this world. We have a God who is in control and he is just. He has given us his law. We have a basis for right and wrong. And we have a basis for justice. Satisfying, righting wrongs. We can clearly define righteousness. And we can have a basis for justice. And we can establish nations with laws that are rooted in the divine law to create justice and actually do something about oppression. We have a basis for that. Do you know it's the people of God on the earth that are given the mandate and the task to end oppressive actions of people on the earth? Why? We're the only one that have the basis for it. Not only that, we don't have to be overcome with grief when evil, when evil people do evil things in this world and just say, oh, well, that's just the way it is. Lions eat gazelles and people do evil things to other people. And, oh, well, that's just the nature of the beast. It's a jungle out there. We don't have to make that conclusion. God has appointed a day. He's in control and he is just. He is deeply satisfied by justice. And he's appointed a judgment day where he will deal with all oppression, cruelty, every single evil deed that has ever been committed will all be bundled up and justice will be net out perfectly. And you know who that's going to satisfy more than anybody? God. God. Yes. Justice. No one gets off on a technicality. The day of judgment is actually our hope that helps us know something may, somebody may have gotten away with something here. But they're not getting away with it. The day of judgment is a hope we have that no evil that happens on this earth will get overlooked or swept under the rug. It will not. It will not. But have you ever thought, why does God let it happen? Why is he waiting till the day of judgment? To do something about the evil deeds that people do? Why does he just let it happen? Well, okay, let me ask you another question. Where would you like for God to start with his judgment right now on the earth? Would you like for him to start with you? Where do you want him to start? In bringing justice to the sin in your heart and the actions you've done. You want him to start with you? Where do you want him to start? See, now you're saying, no, 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 I need God to be slow and patient to judge judgment. Um, and that's, what I, that's the way I respond. I want God to be slow and patient that, to judgment. Not willing that any should perish, but that all come to everlasting life through Jesus Christ. See, I want God to be patient. And what is God doing right here? Peter says, he's being patient. But there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. 
good news for us and you and me in Christ. He settled all your wrongs on the cross. Do you know what Jesus saved us from? The judgment of God. He took it for us. We're not going to face that wrath. Jesus faced it for us. That's what, he mean, that's what it means to be a savior. That is what he's saving us from. The problem of evil in this world is in the human heart. A heart that needs to be changed. A heart that needs to be made new. A heart that needs to be cleansed of sin and new so that you operate from a basis of love, not envy. Spirit power, purity, wholeness. And Jesus cleanses us from envy and gives us grace that we can live a life of love and contentment with what we have. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 to 7 says, For we ourselves, like you and me, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of and the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of gener- regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have a God who sent his Son, and when Jesus appeared the first time, His kingdom began to unfold. He was saying the kingdom is near. The kingdom is here. It has begun. He started unfolding his kingdom. It's still unfolding. It will continue to unfold. And then he will appear a second time. And he will set it up 100% on the earth. The day of mercy, the day of patience is over. He is going to come and he is going to set up his rule and reign. And Isaiah 9 says of the Messiah, of his kingdom there will be no end. So when you lock into the cause of the kingdom, you're not in a cycle. You're a part of a kingdom. Jesus said, even a cup of cold water given in my name will be rewarded and it will last forever. Every investment in the kingdom of Jesus will last forever and will be rewarded. It ends on a cyclical pattern, always coming back to zero. This is the kingdom of Jesus. Everything we do plays a part in that kingdom. Amen? This is our hope. I didn't want to leave you this morning where Ecclesiastes leaves you, in the ditch, right? Crying and searching. Um, Because we have hope as the people of God. But for Ecclesiastes to do what it does, it has to do what it does. And um, so that's our hope. That's who we are. And I wanted to take you there. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And, Lord, I just pray um, as I faithfully... Uh, presented it as best I could. I just pray you take you take these words and and um, pull them into people's hearts and um, sh- show us where we are um, in our hearts. Are, are we clinging to something in this world as our meaning, our di- our identity, our purpose, and our happiness? And oh Lord, would would you wean us like a child from its mother who cries, cries because it can't have what it wanted? But it doesn't realize Whataburger. It doesn't realize there's steak and potatoes and all kind of wonderful things available. Lord, the best thing you can do for us is to wean us from the temporal things of this world and us seeking our identity and our meaning and our purpose in the things of this temporal world. Thank you for Ecclesiastes. Thank you for that. And Lord, 
take this time of response. As we sing this song, I pray that, that you would meet with us and that we would do business with you authentically and openly before you in our hearts. And Lord, if there's a person in this room who hasn't come to Christ, come into the kingdom of Christ by making Jesus Christ Lord and Savior and Master, the happiness of God, come into the happiness of God today. Lay down the reins of your life and give them to him. That's where happiness is found. Do it today. Father, take this time of response. Move us where you want us to go. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me all across the room. Let's sing together and let's do business with the Lord.